On today's episode of EDS at Union Now, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas talks to two faith leaders who are at the forefront of the Episcopal Church's response to our current environmental crisis. The Reverend Dr. Margaret Bullitt Jonas and Corinna Gore help prepare pastors and church leaders with the knowledge, skills, and courage to effectively address climate change in their communities. They tell us about this critical work and what it would look like for the Episcopal Church to become known as an exemplar community of leading the way in caring for creation. If you enjoy today's episode, subscribe here or wherever you listen uh, to podcasts. Share the news with your friends and let us know what you think by leaving a review. And with that, here is Dean Douglas. Enjoy the show. would like to thank all of you for joining us in this conversation on creation care and the church's responsibility in this regard. I'm happy to have joining me in this conversation, the Reverend Dr. Margaret Bullitt Jonas, an Episcopal priest, an EDS alum, author, and climate activist, currently serving as Missioner for Creation Care for both the Episcopal Diocese of Western Massachusetts and the Massachusetts Conference of the United Church of Christ. Welcome, Margaret, and thank you for being here. Also joining us in conversation, we're very pleased to have Ms. Corinna Gore, who is the director of the Center for Earth Ethics at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Having previously worked in the Legal Center of Sanctuary for Families and as Director of Community Affairs for the Association to the Benefit of Children. She is also an author, the author of Lighting the Way, Nine Women Who Changed Modern America. Thank you for joining us in this conversation this afternoon, Corinna. I want to get started, jump right in with this conversation by asking both of you, What brings you to this work on creation care and concern for the environment? Margaret. I am not by training a scientist. I'm, I loved literature, loved religion. It's very personal for me. I, part of my own personal journey is I am in recovery from a food addiction and needed to make peace with my body. And the process of making peace with my body depended on turning my life over to the care of God, to a higher power. That was the big transformation of my life. And through that transformation, I went to seminary and was ordained. I happened to be ordained in June of 1988, which was the same month that climate scientist James Hansen was testifying to the Senate about this thing called greenhouse gas emissions and global warming. And I began to see that the way, well, the way I think of it now is that um, the same love that helped me make peace with my own body is now calling me out to help seek, is it not possible that human beings can make peace with the body of Earth and all of Earth's living communities? And for me, that can only happen through the grace of God, because the obstacles in front of us seem sometimes insuperable, right. impossible. So for me, it's a deeply spiritual effort and mission. Great. And I want to get back to that in, in a moment. But Corinna, let me put the same question to you. What brought you to this conversation and to this concern? So I, I come to this in part because I grew up around a lot of the climate activism that was connected to what Margaret brought up, that hearing before the Senate in 1988. And I, I grew up listening to scientists. It was part of my father's work. Um, but I myself didn't go into this 
personally until I went to seminary. And while I was at Union Seminary, there was a call by the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to host a climate summit at the UN and to engage civil society in solutions to climate change. And at Union, we hosted a, a gathering called Religions for the Earth with over 200 religious and spiritual leaders talking about climate change. And it was in the process of planning that and going deeply into those discussions that I started to think more about how climate change is really, it's not just science and economics, it's really about who we are as human beings. It's a moral and a spiritual crisis. And so let me push that further. Both of you have spoken about climate change as not simply, if you will, an ecological emergency, but a moral emergency, a moral and spiritual crisis. Why do you think it is important to frame this issue that way as a spiritual, moral, and ethical crisis? Well, I'll just jump in. There's, we could spend a, a lot of time on that question. Um, for those of us who are Christian, we believe that God entrusted the earth to our care. So it's ultimately our spiritual moral responsibility to be a blessing on the earth, to, to create communities uh, that are just and sustainable. I also feel that religion has an essential role to play right now as we face what really is an emergency. Scientists have done their work. They've established the facts. They've, they've been saying with increasing alarm for years that the earth is in an unprecedented state of crisis caused by the effect of one species, that would be human beings. So they've done their job. And now to me, it's our role as people of faith to awaken hope, to awaken moral courage. It's heart work, how to open our hearts to stay grounded and rooted in love, and then to let that love animate who we are and what we choose to do. I'll say quickly that one thing that's happening in my little world in Massachusetts is uh, faith leaders and scientists are now forming a coalition saying we need to be in clear public alignment to make it clear that science has a voice and religion and ethical people have a voice. And together we're saying it's an ecological and moral emergency. So let's get going and take action. So how do you do that? How do you get people to really believe that this is a moral emergency, let alone a scientific ecological emergency, particularly when we hear from the highest levels of power in this country that it is not a crisis. And so, how, and there are people that believe that. How do we begin to turn the tide and really get people to understand that this is indeed a matter of great urgency? Corinna. Well, I believe that one of the best ways to do that is to listen to people who are on the front lines of the ecological devastation. And this is true not only about the impacts of climate change, which we have started to feel. And it's worth remembering that, you know, scientists said decades ago, if you do nothing, it'll start to happen around this time. There'll be stronger storms, there'll be droughts, there'll be heat waves. And it, it's happened exactly as they've said. So that alone should lead us to believe that it's worth paying attention to what they're telling us about the decades ahead. But what the impacts are, are now are being felt, of course, mostly by people who are vulnerable, are living in poverty, and that is often because they, they don't 
have the, they've been denied the political and monetary power to get up and leave and to demand government action and intervention on their behalf. So people are losing their whole homes in small island nations where the sea levels are rising and in coastal areas. People are also experiencing deaths from heat waves and droughts. These are voices that are speaking up and it does take our system needs to make more effort to, to promote them, spotlight them and hear them, but that's one thing. But I wanna just add that beyond those impacts of the climate change itself, you can look at who's affected by the fossil fuel extractionist economy. So this is a dirty, poisonous, toxic industry from the beginning. And the people that live near, and we know that it is hugely disproportionate people of color and people living in poverty that are living near coal ash ponds, living near fracking sites, oil drilling sites, and those are people are speaking up and also about the fact that asthma rates, cancer rates living near those areas are higher. So I think that one way to get to, to get past that denial is to really listen to those voices for whom it's their personal experience and they're out there leading the way. What you're pointing to is the relationship in so many respects between our ecological crisis and environmental justice and social justice period and pointing out the fact that our most vulnerable peoples and communities are typically the ones that are indeed most vulnerable and at risk as we talk about our environmental crises. Yet they are also the voices, Corinna, even as you say we've got to listen to them, they are the voices that are not listened to. So how can we as faith leaders, as the faith community, how can we help others to hear those voices? What can we do to bring this home to those people in power that really have the power to do something about this crisis? I've been very enheartened in the last few years to, to discover that what to me is a new word, intersectionality. Mm -hmm. This notion that everything intersects, that these issues that we care deeply about should not be imagined as separate silos, but they actually interconnect. And Pope Francis in his Laudato Si and his encyclical gave us, I don't know if he invented the term, but he gave, he used the term integral ecology. So it's all, it's all of a piece. And that's the way I think about the climate crisis. And I often actually now have stopped calling it climate change. I call it climate crisis mm -hmm. or climate disruption because we're way past just saying it's a change. So I, th I think of the climate crisis as being, it's not like a special interest for a special interest group. Like I'm the person who cares about climate and you're the person who cares about immigration. To me, it's all connected. So if you care about immigration and refugees, you care about climate. If you care about human rights, you care about climate. If you care about public health, you care about climate. If you care about the future of your children, mm -hmm. you care about climate. If you like to breathe, mm -hmm. if you like to eat, if you like to drink water, you care about climate. It's, a, it's like the big basket that, that holds everything that we love. So the good news in that is what there are so many ways we can participate in healing and maybe our path will be through the doorway of immigration or, or public health, but there's so many ways that we can contribute and need to contribute to what really is a massive um, problem. You know, they're, they're even saying we've changed geological ages, that we're no longer, we've, we've now launched the Anthropocene, a new geologic age in which human beings have exerted so much control on geologic systems that it's a different earth that we now inhabit. And we're not in control of that. Go ahead, Corinna. It looks like you want to jump in. Well, I just wanted to say that I think that faith leaders can 
preach about this and it, it is so powerful when you hear that done and and I've heard Margaret preach and and I've in lead prayers and and do also rituals around this th- th- these are this time calls in particular for people who have the sensibility and the skills to bring about a new consciousness to call people to awakening and so I think that it's imperative that we we think in those ways. Organizing is also important. Organizing a community around protecting your watershed is is a really powerful way to do it. And to just be able to come out and, and as a community, go to the river or go to the spring and see that that is God's work. That is, that is God's creation there. And I think sometimes it occurs to me that although there are all these really critical, powerful, important things about religion, religion is also not blameless in this mm-hmm. catastrophe unfolding. There has been some bad theology, just as is in the case with immigration, with gender, with race. There's been some theology to separate people and to say, no, this is to be dominated and exploited. Um, This is given to us to lord over to have dominion on. We are all familiar with that, but I think sometimes we forget how deep it has sunk in people's mentalities. So just to fight so that we don't on our, our Sunday worship hour just educate people out of connection to natural world by saying only this man-made space is sacred, but instead to start to connect outward and say what is sacred is also this beautiful uh, forest and in and, and this watershed and, and in urban areas and in areas where people don't have access to as much green space and as much fresh air to start to really be aware of that too so that we can stand by our brothers and sisters like that in that spirit of ecological justice as we protect the earth. I'm very struck by your observation in terms of the theology that has sustained, nurtured, and fostered the environmental crisis in which we now find ourselves and perhaps has sustained, nurtured, and fostered sort of our blindness to the environmental crisis in which we find ourselves. Margaret, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I, very, I just want to appreciate Corinna for everything you just said, which gets compressed a lot of material in just a little bit of time. Yeah, this is a time when the church is, is called to do its own self-examination, to take a look at our theologies, are they adequate to the situation in which we find ourselves? And the question is also, were they ever adequate? But certainly now we can say a theology that says that God only cares, turns out, for one species, that's inadequate. Or a theology that says it's all about individual salvation. The main thing is that I will get to heaven. It's time, I believe, for us to reclaim the biblical image of salvation, which is much more collective of God creating a new heaven and a new earth. And to enlarge our sense of what the crucifixion and the resurrection really mean. It means that the whole of creation has been caught up in the life of God and has been redeemed and blessed. And that as we participate in the energy of the risen Christ, we too are called out to be servants. You know, the phrase I grew up with was stewards of creation. And I actually have, I have some critique of that languaging. For, for one thing to me, it sometimes sounds too wimpy. I I feel more like we need to be something like sacred warriors. Mm. Because if we just, uh, just one last thing, if all we have to do to leave a ruined world to our children is to keep doing what we're doing today, to keep 
heating our homes and driving our just keeping just doing just keep going our innocent beautiful lives the way they're going we're going to leave a ruined world to our children so it's it's a it's a moment of a great moment to pause for self-reflection as a church and as human beings and to forge a new path yeah no it reminds me of the saying that it all we have to do to keep for instance racism going is to do nothing and you know if we continue to do nothing, then we continue to destroy our very creation, which somehow we have forgotten is sacred, just as you have both so well articulated. Lisa, here we find ourselves in this country having pulled out of the Paris Agreement. What do you see the impact of that being? What ought to be our responsibility. And let me back up even a moment from that. When you first heard (laughs) that this country had pulled out of the Paris Agreement, what were your thoughts? I was appalled. I was very angry. I was not surprised. Um, I think we could probably all see it coming. I know the Paris Climate Accord is not perfect. The, the, The commitments are voluntary. But it it was such a precious, it is such a precious moment uh, of the world's countries coming together saying, we understand that we want to turn away from a suicidal course. We want to protect the web of life on this earth. And uh, I'll never forget that night I got a little, I think it was, I can't remember if it was an email or a text from my bishop, Doug Fisher, saying, you know, it'd be really nice if we could have a statement from the Diocese of Western Massachusetts responding to this announcement that the United States is going to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. And I felt like I have no time to do this, to write this. But on the other hand, I'm so angry, I'm going to make the time. So I collaborated with my friend Jim Antal, who's, you know, I have this wonderful ecumenical job as missioner for creation care for both the Episcopal Diocese of Western Mass and for the United Church of Christ in Massachusetts. So I collaborated with Jim Antal, who at that time was uh, the head of the Massachusetts Conference of the UCC. And together, we just kind of cranked out a statement. And he gave it the title, which is An Opportunity for Which the Church Was Born. Mm. So the statement is addressed not to the wide world, but to the church to say, this is our call to rise to the occasion. And I'll quickly say that the three, the three mm. items, if I can remember them off the top of my head under the pressure of the moment. The first one is to preach. It's to accept the mantle of moral leadership and to preach about climate. Many, many, many Americans say they believe that climate change is real and caused by human beings, but they never talk about it. They've done these studies that show that Americans don't talk about it. And we need to start talking about it in church and we need to preach about it. And I've, with Jim as well, I've, a lot of clergy don't feel equipped to preach. So I think one thing we can do is start creating seminars and workshops and trainings to, give preachers the confidence that they know enough theology, they know enough science, and heavens to Betsy, they need to get out there and put the word out. So the first thing we asked was uh, to preach about climate. And the second thing we asked was to make moral decisions about our own energy choices, Mm -hmm. energy conservation, energy efficiency, so that we're more and more aligning our lives with our values. And the third was to become advocates in the public square, to get politically engaged, to vote, to lobby. We need to get carbon pricing. There are plenty of things that we can push for as good policies. And some of us, and Karenna is one of them, and I'm one of them, will feel called to carry out acts of civil disobedience. 
uh, mm -hmm. some peaceful, nonviolent resistance to these death-dealing forces to, to say, no, you are not going to build more fossil fuel infrastructure. And whether I need to sit down on the train tracks of the train that's carrying coal, or I need to climb into the <laughs> pit where they're putting down pipelines for natural gas, fracked gas, we as people of faith are going to, are, are, are going to protest and resist. Um, so it's an opportunity for which the church was born. I, that was all very powerful. Thank you, Margaret. And thank you for inspiring me. I, I did join a, a nonviolent civil disobedience act. And it, it was uh, in part inspired by listening to, to Margaret's experience. And, and it is a powerful form of witness. Mm -hmm. And I think everything about nonviolence we need to think about now, because as Gandhi and King taught us, it's not passive. It's very powerful and active. And uh, to be in that peaceful, strong, transparent, clear way in a, in a public act that is, uh, it unmasks the violence around us. There's so much violence that, that is just hiding behind the, the fact that it's so conventional and normal. And so to continue to drip, to dig and burn fossil fuels right now is insane. We know that of the amount that we already have in the ground owned by fossil fuel companies, uh, only some percentage of it can be burned and have the planet uh, remain habitable for humanity. We certainly don't need to go out and dig and explore for more. So I think that in terms of, just back to your original question about the Paris Agreement, I, uh, I, was, I was actually quite shocked, even though we, we had heard what, this, uh, what Donald Trump had to say and we, we knew that the head of ExxonMobil had been appointed Secretary of State, and we understood the contours of, of, of power and what had happened. I still, I expected that there would be some kind of hypocritical thing where they would stay in it because, of course, you know, the whole world worked for this. It makes no sense to undo it, and it makes no economic sense for the U.S. So I was stunned by the brazenness and the, the just the very strange level of, of self-harm that is being done here and uh, an almost death wish. Uh, and just for a tiny percentage of, of the profiteers that are still making, have legacy political power. Because right now we know we're gonna change to renewable energy. The question is just how much damage are we gonna do before we make that change? And we know that damage will happen to the poorest and most vulnerable people among us. So just to go back on the Paris thing real quick, because the last, we can't officially, the U.S. cannot officially withdraw the way that the treaty was written until the day after the next presidential election. So, of course, we know what our, what our president has said and what the implications of that are, and we have to acknowledge that. But we also have to see that it matters more than ever that we understand where, how our democracy functions. We don't shy away from something being political when actually what we're talking about is self-government and, and, and lack of fear to engage with powerful systems. That's not political in the bad sense, you know? So I think that it's more important than ever. And there's also, I wanna mention one last thing, which is that there is this movement called We're Still In, and you can go to the website we're still in and there have been mayors and governors and businesses and faith groups who have signed on to we're still in meaning we're still in the paris agreement no matter what uh, donald trump says so that's been a really powerful response too and that has been the light coming in really strong when there are these uh these forces that um to be reckoned with 
You both have said so much. Don't know where to begin to respond. Point out two things before uh, give a final question or ask your response to two things. One, Margaret, and you're so right about preaching and advocating and civil disobedience and the role of the church. I think there's a role of the institutions like seminaries that train students for the ministry, whatever ministries which they will go to, to help them to understand how to speak on these issues, why it is important to speak on these issues. And Corinna, as you have raised, to begin to interrogate the theologies that we hold so dear and to begin to talk about how those theologies have indeed legitimated the very damage that we have done to our creation. And so there is a role for all of us, each of us to play. I'm also struck as we talk about these issues, fracking, et cetera, you know, they always say, follow the money. And I am very aware of the lobbies that allow for the damage to our creation to persist. But I'm also aware that we too can be a lobby, that the faith community can be one of the strongest lobbies. Why are we reluctant, do you think, either one of you, to raise our voices and to challenge these capitalistic lobbies, if you will, to challenge these lobbies and to be that moral force, that moral lobby that begins to point us in a different direction. What's, what's the church's fear? What's the faith community's fear of being that lobby? Great question. Well, you know, I think the old idea, the old response would be we're too polite in the Episcopal Church, so we're too polite. I think we're kind of outgrowing that that notion. I do think there's a lot of fear. And just, just, just to use the simple example of preaching, I think it's really helpful to surface all the reasons that preachers are afraid to preach about climate change in any kind of bold, prophetic way. That They, they may be afraid, of, oh, this is too political. Or this is, uh, what's going to happen to the pledges in my parish? Or who, who's going to walk out on the in the vestry. I've heard it said that you should, that every preacher should have his or her own pack your bag sermon, like the sermon that you're <laughs> off, you read it, you just need to preach it because God is calling you to preach it. And if you have to pack your bags and leave, so be it. And I, I look forward to the day when that becomes the spirit that animates uh, more of the preaching and teaching and adult education and Christian formation in our church to make it really crystal clear that, you know, the Jesus I love walked the earth. I think one of the speakers was talking about that this morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was outdoors. He was on the water. He was by the sea. He was on the mountaintop. He spoke of lilies and, and sparrows. And he lived, as I imagine him, in a very, very much connected with the natural world, A, a sensibility that most of us urban folks have lost. So to be true to him is, is to recover that sense of, of reverence for the holiness of earth and land and air, reverence for ourselves, reverence for all of God's creation. And that spiritual perception results in ethical action. It has an ethical outcome to, to protect that web of life into which you and I were born and which is unraveling before our eyes means we each have to become prophets. We each have to be stepping out and taking whatever action we can do to lead, as Karenna was saying, to leave a habitable world for future generations. So you are the Missioner for Creation Care in Western Massachusetts. Karenna, you are the Director for the Center of Earth Ethics 
at Union Theological Seminary. If, in fact, the church and the religious faith communities were to become known as perfect exemplars of those who led the way in caring for our creation, what would that look like? It's a tough one. Well, I'll start by saying to bridge from the last conversation about why we aren't doing more now, what holds people back from that prophetic role. I do think that there's a fear of hypocrisy that people have as well. I think that those other things are are really in play in terms of angering the the potentially angering the the donors or, or people who would view it as political. But I also feel like this situation is one in which we are all implicated in some way in the fossil fuel economy. We know, we know climate change is happening. We know it's man-made. We know it's mainly caused by use of fossil fuels. We also know most of us, the way that our, the buildings and homes and our, the vehicles we drive, the transportation, the way we get our food, the way our clothing is, all that stuff. And I think what we need to do and this bridges to the specific question you asked me is what would it look like? We have to have the courage to face the complexities of that, to overcome the need to have one enemy that you point to and say, that's the bad guy. And we just have to defeat the bad guy. And then we're all set because this is something that, that we have to look, we have to look in some ways, non-judgmentally to how do we do transformative change and not as individuals, because we can make individual choices and those are good, but we have to make these choices communally. The only way we're going to make the changes we need to make is if we make decisions as body politics that come together in a functional way and make those as group decisions. So I think what we need to do as faith leaders, and in my case, um, working at a center at a seminary, is start to look at how to, the basic reconnection with the natural world. Nature and earth are strong teachers, whatever word you use, creation, nature, earth, the sacred element, strong teachers, and it's available. I mean, even if you're in an urban setting, you can get up with the sunrise. You know, you can look at the sky. These are things that I think if we consciously connect to and we look to our communities and our specific roles to sort of say, how do we, even with the air we breathe, the water we drink, reconnect in that way of acknowledgement and then look at things in terms of individual, community, and nation or state level. And those three things working together in a way that's not about judgment and punishment and blame, mm -hmm. but is about growing in a kind and forgiving way together towards a new and much better world than I think that we'll be doing, we'll be doing well. Thank you. Margaret. So the question is, what's the vision of the Episcopal Church has become lit up <laughs> with, with love for creation and is faithful? Well, I'm very, I'm very grateful to Bishop Doug Fisher for giving me this job as Missioner for Creation Care in my diocese mm -hmm. of Western Massachusetts. I would love there to be the equivalent kind of position created in diocese across the country and across the whole Episcopal Church. It's very helpful to have there be at least at least one person, and I could use several other people beside me, really, to have at least one person who's focusing on the issue of protecting the web of life and how faith communities can serve that quest. Some of the things we've done just in the last few years are, you know, we started a season of creation care, uh, which I, we are marking beginning on September 1st and ending on October 4th of St. Francis Day. 
special season. If you, if, and we have this beautiful website, thanks to our wonderful communications director. If you go to the website for the Diocese of Western Massachusetts and look for creation season in the drop down menu, we've got sort of rich offerings of how to pray and act and advocate uh, and learn around caring for creation. And I, I've heard some people object, well, we shouldn't have a special season of creation because this really should be happening all the time. And of course, I 100% agree that it should be happening all the time. But to me, the analogy is prayer, that, that we, we only learn to pray some of the time. We only learn to pray all of the time everywhere if we learn to pray some of the time somewhere. Hmm. So if in this stretch of weeks, churches, congregations can focus on, okay, what can I do to be a more faithful sacred warrior or steward of creation? If I can do it in that stretch of time, maybe I can do it later in the rest of the year. It's, I'm trying to just boost momentum. We've offered outdoor prayer services, Christian ecumenical services, interfaith services. The whole climate crisis really can evoke interfaith collaboration and connection in a beautiful way where people of very different faiths, very different vocabularies and rituals come together saying we share this one common home and we together will rise up to protect it. So I see lots of opportunities ahead for the Episcopal Church. And maybe I'll just say, several years ago, scientists noticed that the West Antarctic ice sheet is starting to collapse mm -hmm. and slide into the sea. And some of the scientists have been saying that that collapse is unstoppable. Hmm. And I, where I go with that is I say, so is the love of God is unstoppable. That love will never stop. And so whatever we can do to step into that river of love that is always flowing through us, we don't know it half the, I don't know it half the time, but whenever we do step into that flow of love, it's a love that cannot be stopped. So how to, my hope is just, I've got this one little life. How can I offer it into that, into that river of God's love as best I can? And I, I think that's what each of us is invited to do and that we as a church are invited to do. There's no better way to stop than with that, inviting us in to that river of love that is God. I thank both of you for this conversation, which is only the beginning of more conversations that we will have, but I hope has inspired conversations for others to have that have been listening. Thank you very much, and thank you for your work.